Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of SEPAD Pod, the sectarianism, proxies, and desectarianization podcast based at Lancaster University. I'm Simon Maybon, and today I'm joined by Andrew March. Andrew is Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. He's someone who's written a lot on a range of different topics pertaining to political philosophy, Islamic law, political thought, religion, and political theory. And he had a, a really big influence on me when I was doing some work for my recent book, Houses Built on Sand. So I'm really delighted that he's able to join us today to, to talk about a range of different things, including uh, a couple of really fascinating books published by Oxford um, called Islam and Liberal Citizenship, The Search for an Overlapping Consensus, published back in 2009, and a more recent book, The Caliphate of Man, The Invention of Popular Sovereignty in Modern Islamic Thought, published by Harvard in uh, 2019, or is that later, uh, earlier this year, should I say? But anyway, Andrew, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I'm delighted to be on your podcast. Uh, it's really kind of you to join us in these these very strange times, but uh, I'm really pleased that we could make it happen. First things first, I guess I should clarify. Your second book, The Caliphate of Man, is it out now or did it come out towards the end of 2019? Yeah, it came out last September 2019. Fantastic. It's been out for a uh, good five or six months now. Amazing. Well, congratulations on that. Thank uh, you very much. I have it on my big pile of reading that I was hoping to get through during this strange time, but... Uh, such is no life worry. that I will get there at some point. Anyway, Andrew, um, I normally start the podcast with a question about what prompted your interest in the academy, um, political theory, political philosophy, Islamic thought. Kind of a broad question, I guess, given your broad range of interests. Yeah, you know, that's a really, that uh, autobiographical question is always a hard one to answer. And I think people are not always the uh, the most authoritative and reliable or trustworthy narrators of their own uh, uh, causality in terms of how their interests uh, change and so forth. Uh, you know, I think basically um, there's a very, very simple sort of um, uh, story about how I moved in from a study when I was an undergraduate of um, sort of uh, ethnic conflict in the late 1990s and so forth to political theory. And that uh, story is largely about um, not really being very good at any kinds of quantitative sort of skills and knowing that my skills uh, lay more in the humanities right. and in uh, qualitative research and so forth. Uh uh, I sort of uh, by accident started taking classes in intellectual history and political theory as an undergraduate and uh, realized that that probably fit more my temperament, my skills. And it was something that uh, whatever other life changes that you had, you were always able to, um, you know, be in a library, always able to read books, always able to think about things without necessarily having the freedom and the funds to um, engage in the kinds of things that would require uh, you know, lots of overseas field work and that sort of thing. So there's a, you know, there's a kind of banal explanation for that. But I think it was more once I started uh, encountering political theory, I think I, think I felt the, the sort of excitement at uh, trying to uh, argue things out and see what sort of uh, beliefs you ought to hold and what sorts of things you can justify. And, and that's what I've been doing ever since. Fantastic. When I was doing my preparation for this podcast, I, I went back through your your CV and, and the amount of work you've done on uh, on the post-Soviet states is is slightly at odds with with perhaps your more recent work. So I was curious to see how that that fitted into to what it is that you're doing here. But what was it that that prompted the interest in the post-Soviet ethnic conflict uh, set of debates? 
well, you know, there's also so there's a uh, again the, the autobiographical story about that is fairly straightforward. I um, when I was uh, in high school, actually, uh, from about the age of sixteen, I um, I went to the former Czechoslovakia as an exchange student. So I spent a number of years, even before university, uh, living in Slovakia, learning Slavic languages, uh, and then traveling throughout the Balkans after. Um, after the war in Bosnia, but before the war in Kosovo. Right, okay. And I had spent some time um, in Kosovo before the war, during the war, and so forth. And so by the time I went to university, I was interested in studying certain aspects of nonviolent resistance that then turned into the civil war there. And I had a kind of affinity for, um, you know, the languages and the politics of the post-Soviet world. Uh, but the Central Asia stuff that you're talking about, that was actually my master's thesis at the University of Oxford, uh, believe it or not, in the summer of 2001. Uh, it was a time when I was sort of searching around for my identity as a political theorist, and I was interested in ideology. I was interested in the phenomenon of um, enduring anti-democratic authoritarian regimes. Now, of course, today we're also in a moment where uh, we are, again, surprised at the resilience and resurgence of uh, uh, authoritarianism and uh, the ideological and um, doctrinal rejection of uh, liberal democracy. But this was at a time, you know, sort of in the late 90s, early 2000s, when we still had this kind of Whiggish assumption that, that everybody was moving towards democracy. And so where you had resilient authoritarian regimes, like in Uzbekistan, for example, um, I was interested in, in what were the language was of just uh, justifying um, authoritarianism or rejection of democracy when uh, you know Marxism Leninism was no longer available and in which nationalism per se didn't seem to be enough. Uh, but there was also just a, a sort of an element where I wasn't yet fully formed and I wasn't exactly taking my career very seriously. <laughs> sure. And I just wanted to go to Uzbekistan. I had always kind of wanted to go to Central Asia, and it seemed like there was an interesting rationale for that. So I spent the summer uh, or the late summer in uh, Uzbekistan, and that's actually where I was on 9-11. I was first in a, a, a place in uh, the far western part of Uzbekistan when um, the report of the assassination of the Northern Alliance commander, Ahmed Shah Massoud, came in. And I was like, wow, that's interesting. And then I was um, lying in bed in Tashkent when the news started coming in about 9-11, so that was clearly, you know, the moment in which uh, this idea that you could just sort of, you know, from year to year kind of pick up a new academic hobby um, was no longer viable for me. Sure. It's interesting that that when you had that moment on, on 9-11, that given your interest and given this, this realization that it wasn't a case of flitting between different academic projects, that you went down the route of, of political theory. So can we go into that a little bit? When, when you did your, your political theory course uh, during your undergraduate and you realized that, that this is where your, your passion was and what you were interested in, what was it that, that caught your attention? What, what piqued your interest? You know, it's hard to even really recall that at this point. You know, I think it was sort of a, um, you know, a, you know, when you start to encounter, I was a little bit com late coming to it, actually. You know, I I had a kind of uh, circuitous route to that. I sort of started taking classes in intellectual history and political theory sort of uh, uh, somewhat late in the last uh, sort of two years of my undergraduate career. And it's hard to sort of reconstruct 
what exactly it is that captured you beyond the kind of the excitement of engaging with text and trying to make connections and trying to, you know, sort of um, fill in your understanding of uh, the genealogy of, of modern political philosophy and so forth. So uh, I don't think there's anything really more imaginative to say than just there's this kind of when you start to encounter Marx and Kant and and so forth. And Agamben, actually, I think I read Agamben for the first time, uh, as you were mentioning earlier, um, uh, sort of as an undergrad. Um, uh, you know, it's a, it's a rabbit hole that you never really come out of. I think that's a good way of putting it, actually. You're sort of scrambling for the surface somehow, and, and in doing that, you get pulled deeper and deeper into the rabbit hole. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and of course, going from, I was at, I was, as an undergrad at the University of Pennsylvania, and then coming to Oxford, there was a kind of a culture clash in which, you know, Oxford at that time was still very, very much oriented towards kind of, um, you know, analytic political philosophy. Yeah. There were people that studied ideology and continental thought, but, you know, the, the culture and the tenor of the place was very much that the, um, you know, the the most respected people, the, the sort of the intellectual prestige was with those that make original arguments and are engaging in analytic political, political philosophy. And so you get a sense in which, you know, what do you regard as serious or what do you regard as um, a good way of making a case for something or an argument? And so you get formed, you know, people, particularly when they're young, are, are impressionable. And you're always looking for some kind of exemplar. You're looking for the respect or the esteem of a particular kind of discourse, you know, sociology of knowledge kind of stuff. Yeah. And, uh, and then I think you spend, hopefully, ideally, you spend the rest of your career kind of resisting any sort of mere replication of a particular uh, uh, mode of thinking or mode of writing that you get socialized into. Mm. That's, that's interesting. Where then did life take you after Oxford and after the experience of Uzbekistan? It took you directly into a PhD program? Yeah, I actually stayed in Oxford for the next four years or so, and um, you know, I finished my master's and I wrote a number of pieces on the research on Uzbekistan. And then, you know, I had actually I had, I had studied Arabic for quite a while before that. Um, I had uh, Arabic was one of my majors as an undergraduate at the University of Pennsylvania, and when I got to Oxford, I continued studying Arabic there, and I had you know fairly decent reading levels of Arabic. Um, and, and so I think the experience at the time, I was, you know, obviously people were talking about all kinds of things related to, you know, Islam and this and Islam and that. Um, and, uh, you know, I had a, a certain background at the undergraduate uh, level of, of studying Arabic and studying um, Islamic studies. But I think my my mind was very, very much focused on um you know, a lot of the debates that were going around at that time about how do you study and how do you talk about um, what dimension of current events at that time were uh, actually related to any kind of um, deep intellectual, moral, political, legal, or philosophical tradition. And it, and it took me a while to sort of figure out how I want to approach that. And to some extent, I'm still doing that. You know, I'm still sort of, um, you know, I did not want my second book to just be a continuation of my first or to constantly be, uh, you know, drilling down the same uh, uh, well, so to speak. So, um, you know, it's, it's still sort of been a, a process of figuring out what it is I think is the best way um, to ask important, interesting, um, uh, intellectually rigorous questions that have some kind of moral integrity as well related to um, the encounter between uh, Islamic conceptions of value and non-Islamic conceptions of value. 
That's that's really interesting. I was going to ask you how you would group your your research because you you seem to be pushing in in a number of really fascinating ways. But I think your your final comment just did a really good job of of articulating that this this experience, this coming together of Islamic and non-Islamic values and traditions. So I I think that actually does a really good job of of explaining what you're trying to do across your your various publications. Would you say that's that's an accurate depiction of what you're doing? Yeah, I think that's general enough definitely to be to be accurate uh, across the various kinds of things that I've worked on. Fantastic. Andrew, I want to talk a, a quite a bit about your your second book, but before we get there and and also about some of the stuff you've done on sovereignty, but for people who've not read your first book, can you just give a quick overview of what it is that you did in that, please? And then we can, we can move on to uh, the 2010s rather than going back um, a number of years. Okay, so the, the first book uh, did two things. Uh, at first, it picked up on a lot of literature in the political philosophy of the 1990s and early 2000s on multiculturalism, on citizenship, um, on uh, the limits of liberalism. Uh, religious diversity, that sort of thing. Um, you know, there was, a, you know, the 1990s were a time in which, um, you know, there were all kinds of books being written, not only in the kind of Will Kimlicka vein on um, multicultural citizenship and so forth, but, uh, you know, Rawls's political liberalism only yeah. came out in 1993. So, uh, you know, it was still a lot of political philosophers were digesting the stuff about a kind of liberalism that was not metaphysical, that was only making certain kinds of claims, that was about uh, uh, trying to make a case that it could accommodate um, different comprehensive doctrines or worldviews, that its demands of citizenship were merely reasonable rather than metaphysically true. Uh, so there was a lot of that kind of literature, um, and it sort of framed a, um, a very specific problem for me, which is how should liberal political philosophy engage with um, Islam as such as a distinct uh, metaphysical doctrine. So there was a there's a kind of philosophical lens through which you say, well, you know, you have a diverse citizenship in which uh, Muslims come from a wide variety of backgrounds, um, ethnically and uh, in terms of the relationship to the history of colonialism. The Muslim population in America, for example, stands in a very different, I think, sociological and historical position than the, um, uh, you know, than the Muslim population, let's say in, in Britain or in France, for example. Uh, so, so using that kind of philosophical lens, the question becomes, well, of course, we can treat issues of racism, we can treat issues of historical injustice, colonialism, uh, language rights, education rights, and all that. But what if you just tried to ask questions about, um, you know, whatever else, Islam also is this independent, autonomous source of value and uh, claims on conscience and moral commitment. And so what does uh, liberalism have to say to that? Uh, and then you have, an, uh, on the other side, you had a rising discourse in um, Islamic law that began also sort of in the 1990s on what's referred to as the Islamic law of Muslim minorities or fiqh al-aqaliyat. And so Muslims started asking, Muslim scholars, jurists, public intellectuals, um, how can Islamic law uh, uh, relate to and give answers to the questions of both daily life that Muslims face in non-Muslim societies, but also broader questions related to um, 
uh, 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 civic engagement or political obligation, political loyalty, those sorts of things. So, uh, you know, there were two very, very rich discourses that I tried to say something about. And I think that the aspect of that project that I um, I think I, I, I find the most interesting today, sort of, you know, 10 to 15 years after beginning it, is, um, you know, what I really think was going on in a lot of those internal Islamic discourses on uh, Muslim minorities and so forth is a very, very interesting attempt to grapple with moral theory from an Islamic perspective and what is the substance of the moral relationship, not only between Muslims and non-Muslims, but towards a non-Muslim political community. There are a lot of very, very technical, detailed questions. Can you vote? Do you have to migrate or can you live here? Um, uh, as well as you know, countless other technical questions from an Islamic legal standpoint about um, uh, you know, let's say interest-bearing mortgages or working in a place that serves alcohol, all kinds of technical questions that uh, a Muslim might want to know about um, their daily practice. But there was also this effort to think, aside from questions that can be answered in a technical, juridical way, how do we understand in a broader sense the substance of the moral relationship? And I think sure. um, that's the stuff that I that I discovered and wrote upon that I think um, uh, uh, I still consider to be the most interesting. Yeah, I can certainly see see why. I think we'd have to maybe get you back on to discuss that in more detail, and I'd like to do that at some point, Andrew. But the the two things that I really wanted to talk to you about today concerned uh, what you've just touched on with regard to Islamic community and also your your second book project. But going back to to the idea of community, it's here where I first encountered your work on on sovereignty and Islamic conceptions of sovereignty and how we understand sovereignty within Islam broadly, which is a, a rich um, political theological set of debates that that do have a, a practical relevance, I think, today, but also are, are hugely philosophical, fascinating stuff. It really helped me with, with my book, as I mentioned, but I genuinely found it so rich and so intellectually stimulating. So can you tell us a bit about what you were trying to do then when you started to look at at sovereignty, and you wrote a couple of pieces around sovereignty, genealogies of sovereignty in Islamic political theology, and 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 a couple of others, I believe, about this concept of sovereignty within Islam. And it's one that that I think is often largely misunderstood. So could you could you offer a, a bit of an overview about what sovereignty in Islam is, please? Yeah, well, first, maybe I can start by telling how I sort of stumbled backwards into the book that I ended up writing. So sure. anybody that encounters the study of political Islam in the 20th century begins with this idea that Islam is committed to something called divine sovereignty. So if you if you begin at any level of reading um, modern Islamism in the form of Maududi or Qutb or something like that, you're, you encounter the claim that Islam is committed to divine sovereignty, the sovereignty of God, as opposed to any form of um, human sovereignty, whether that is popular sovereignty in the form of the nation state or the people, um, or um, uh, uh, let's say uh, the sovereignty of a king or a military dictator or a president, whatever it is. So that's a kind of basic thing, you know, divine sovereignty, and then this is, is sort of interpreted as the restoration of the Sharia. Yeah. And that was a kind of idea that um, 
you know, of course you encounter when you're reading this, but I didn't think there was anything particularly new or interesting to be done there. And then, of course, particularly after um, 9-11, you are encountered with this massive Islam and democracy literature. Can Muslims be Democrats? Can Islam be democratic? And I think even though I was also working in a kind of like, you know, is Islam compatible with liberal citizenship or how do we frame this discussion? I think even I kind of, you know, wanted to keep that literature at, at arm's length. And um, so anyway, I knew that sort of that, that broad um, framing of the problem of Islam and political legitimacy in the 20th century in the back of my mind. Um, and I had been working after my first book on a series of problems related to the idea of religious freedom. So I was interested in um, whether a certain Islamic legal theory, the legal theory of the objectives of Islamic law, the maqasid, the sharia, could be used as a sophisticated way of framing debates and conversations between Islamic law and non-Islamic legal systems about the scope of religious freedom. Right. And so it's clear that there's a liberal conception of religious freedom that is obviously not the one that is advanced by uh, Islamic law. But at the same time, uh, it's very popular for modern political thinkers to say, well, Islamic law is not just frozen in the past and it's not just what individual texts say, but it's embedded in a broader theory of the ultimate purposes of Islamic law. And this can be a disciplined way of thinking about um, ethical and legal uh, change, you know, hi- you know, creating a hierarchy of what is the most important, what kinds of things are, are more peripheral and so forth. So I was interested, I was reading a lot of that literature uh, sort of after my, my first book came out in 2009 through 2011 and 12. And then you have the Arab Spring. So I was working on uh, those sorts of problems and I was thinking of writing a paper on what might it mean for certain Islamist thinkers who may be coming to power in the wake of the Arab Spring, what are their views on Islamic legal theory, what the Sharia is, what is timeless, what is not, what ought to be implemented, what are the range of flexibility, who does this, all of the sort of the the standard questions about um, the the problem of reinventing Islamic law within the um, context of the modern state. So I started reading this Tunisian thinker, Rashid al-Ghanoushi, who had been in exile in the United Kingdom for 25 years or so, um, and was also known for a very long time as a very prominent intellectual, a prominent theorist of Islam and democracy, uh, and also a kind of a creative uh, uh, legal theorist in the vein of um, Islamic modernism. So uh, I start. I picked up, you know, his his text that had been written, you know, 20 or so years earlier, particularly. Um, a book that is would be translated in English as Public Freedoms in the Islamic State, looking for um, his treatment of Islamic legal theory, right? Discussing yeah. what is Islamic law and what ought to be applied and what is, is flexible and how do we how do we develop a theory of that. So I picked up this text and I realized very quickly that while he does discuss certain things like that, the core concept of his book was this theory of the universal caliphate or what I ended up calling the caliphate of man. So throughout this book, he begins and he frames his entire discourse around this doctrinal claim that the people at large is God's deputy on earth. And I just became so gripped with that uh, with that concept. And of course, you know, I had heard of that before. You know, that I wasn't the first person, obviously, to discover this. Um, and then, and you know, I go back and I look at things that I read before, and you and you people have pointed out that thinkers from a certain period had made this idea 
of uh, the Ummah or the people more broadly as God's uh, caliph as, as, a, um, as a kind of prominent doctrinal claim. Um, but I think it had been sort of treated as an aside, right? It had been noted, it had been noted that, well, thinkers since Maududi have been trying to frame some kind of hybrid theocratic democratic regime. Um, but it hadn't really been treated, as far as I could tell, in a really rigorous, comparative, political theoretic or political philosophical way. Mm-hmm. And so um, I kind of completely shifted gears. I realized that this is really what's going on. And I thought that the problem of sovereignty was a deeper and more complex way of approaching questions of democracy, political community, constituent power. Um, what is a political community? How do you relate to the modern state? So the very idea of sovereignty and the idea that the people may be sharing sovereignty with God sort of connected to everything. And so um, and this allowed me to sort of open myself up to uh, a wider variety of literatures in political theory and political philosophy. So from around, you know, 2011, 2012, um, that was how that was sort of where I shifted gears. And it, and it you know, took me a good six, seven years to finish the book. But um you know, in addition to liking some things about the book, I really, I kind of, I appreciate the way that my interest developed out of a discovery of something in the primary source materials rather than an outside assertion that, well, there must be this thing going on. Let me go yeah. find it. It was sort of a, a I, I, I was pushed in a certain direction by uh, what was most important to the thinkers that I was reading rather than what was regarded as an important question from outside of Islam. That's really interesting, and I can certainly see why that would be an exciting thing for for you, or indeed for for any researcher. Andrew, you you pointed out one of the key tensions, and I'd like you to elaborate on it, if possible, please, between this this Western system, that perhaps you want to call it the Westphalian system of, of sovereign states, and then this broader sort of communal sovereignty, if you want, the caliphate of man, as, as you call it. How do the two sit together? Can they sit together? I mean, I, I think I agree with you that that the question of sovereignty allows for a much deeper and much richer set of discussions about important issues than the the discussion about um, Islam and democracy. I mean, that, that seems a little bit dated and a little bit flawed to me, but the, the tension, I think, takes place on that slightly higher level in terms of the current ordering of political life predicated on a Westphalian system, and then this this caliphate of man that you articulate. So how do the two sit together? Can they sit together, or is that that relationship just a point of, of tension? So I think there's two separate questions there. The first is, um, can the modern, bounded, territorial nation-state be a site for the realization of certain kinds of core important Islamic aims. So there the idea would be that it's the nation state as opposed to something broader like the ummah or some kind of political community that um, uh, uh, is a non-arbitrary grouping of people. So of course, from an Islamic standpoint, the grouping of people according to territory or ethnicity or language or even history um, is fundamentally morally arbitrary. Uh, and so we're very, very familiar with the idea that the nation state is a Western imposition, that it comes about from uh, the colonial uh, dividing up of territory, and that the rise and advent of various kinds of nationalisms uh, within the Muslim world is something that is 
uh, by and large, either rejected or critiqued by those who are operating from a more religious pan-Islamic um, uh, uh, frame of mind. So that's one one kind of question. I would say before moving on, that doesn't tend to be as big of a problem in a lot of these thinkers as you might expect. So um, it's kind of like a, a technical problem, right? Well, sure. yeah, it's not ideal that we're dealing with this in the framework of Egypt or Tunisia or Turkey, but here we are. We have to start here someday. You know, we can we can aspire to this at a broader level. Now, there's a more complicated question, and you get this from you know the readings, uh, reading people like uh, Well Halak in the past few years, yeah. that the state as as such, regardless of what Islamists think, is a un-Islamic concept. It's an un-Islamic institution, and it will always overwhelm any kind of efforts to make it more legitimate. So the state itself has its own um, sovereign uh, uh, hegemony. And whether it's a liberal or an Islamic attempt to use the state as a way of advancing some other conception of morality or justice, that will always fail because state sovereignty will always um, uh, uh, swallow up everything else. Now that, I think, is a... um, you know, is a very, very complex question that I think it's true that a lot of Islamist political thinkers have not thought enough about. And in fact, um, not from reading Halak, but from reading the horizons of a lot of the thinkers that I was dealing with in my first book, that's kind of where my research has gone uh, uh, towards a third project, which is what would it mean for Islamists after the trajectory of 20th century and early 21st century to kind of frame an Islamic political thought outside of the problem of sovereignty itself. Mm, Interesting. That's genuinely really fascinating, and it's provoking a lot of thoughts in my mind. Um, rather than me sort of waffling on about my own pontifications about this this issue, for people who've not had the, the pleasure of reading Halak, can you just articulate a little bit more about how and why the state overrides the um, any Islamist efforts, please? Well, so Halak's claim is fairly simple. It's that in pre-modern Islam, which he defines as pre-colonial Islam, so it's it's entirely about um, an external thing that was done to Muslim societies in the form of British and French uh, colonization, uh, there was never a state in Islam. So Islam never had a state in the, in the sense of a sovereign, law-giving, all-controlling, all-governing apparatus. That Islamic law was a kind of ecosystem. So it's a, if you use, you know, you, you need to search for non-sovereign metaphors. So Islamic law was like an ecosystem in which the people, jurists, texts, the tradition of argumentation, institutions like uh, mosques and colleges and courts and uh, pious endowments, the walks, all of that existed in an organic, harmonious relationship and yes, there may have been a kind of state apparatus over it, but it was like a it was like a uh, a thatched roof uh, uh, over a much richer kind of garden. So, if, so imagine you know, it's not exactly Halak's metaphor, although it's I think it's close enough. So imagine a very very rich um, uh, uh, garden that's blooming and and blossoming and all of this. And over it, yes, you have some kind of like very very uninteresting. Um, roof that protects it from something, but it was never the kind of uh, um, 
source of validity or morality or law or anything like that. And it was very minimal. It was, it was only committed to certain kinds of administrative um, things. And so law derived its authority not from any sovereign command, but from this harmonious relationship whereby uh, the people were woven into a kind of uh, uh, great chain of being that went from God to the cosmos uh, to, to, to every last individual via the mediation of scholars and texts and so forth. And then the modern state comes in like an asteroid, like the asteroid that kills the dinosaurs. <laughs> and yeah. uh, and it, destroys, um, it destroys this ecosystem. Now, you can try to recreate a dinosaur in your museum and you can put the bones together and you can even like, you know, put some kind of uh, fiberglass uh, skin around it to make it look like a Tyrannosaurus Rex, but that's not Islamic law. So that's kind of Halak's view and that the modern state is therefore this completely inescapable modern tar pit in which the more you move and you try to operate within it, um, you know, the more you are, uh, 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 bound within its uh, within its terms. I think I've exhausted every possible mixed metaphor here. <laughs> uh, and so, uh, and so that's the base. And so, when the Islamists now say we want to create an Islamic state, and the state is just a um, uh, is just a means, it's a mechanism that we can use for for other kinds of purposes. Halak will argue that this is not just practically unlikely or difficult, but is a metaphysical, ontological impossibility. Right. It's like saying that you are going to create a dinosaur out of fiberglass, right? Yeah. That just is not what a dinosaur is. So um, uh, anyway, so that's his argument. And I, I don't agree with the, um, with the kind of uh, metaphysical approach to it, right? I, I think that, first of all, historically, it downplays the extent to which there was state activity in pre-modern Islam. That, yeah, you know, sure. The Ottoman realm, the Ottoman sultan had all kinds of law-giving powers, um, and that the st that, that uh, actual state-like activity was much more um, central to, to pre-modern Islamic history. Um, so that's one objection. Um, I don't really like the language of um, metaphysical authenticity when it is employed by non-Muslims and imposed on Muslims. The idea that mm. I know from my stylized Orientalist reading of Islamic law what is uh, uh, authentic and metaphysically possible, and therefore, this is not a even uh, logical or ontological possibility. I don't think that's really the kind of thing that non-Muslims, in particular, like myself and Halak, should be in the business of. Um, and uh, uh, I, I, I uh, well, I think that covers a lot, right? That historically it yeah, wasn't quite sure. accurate, and I don't think we need to be in the business of saying the state is a kind of metaphysical impossibility. Having said that. Obviously, and this is well known by anybody who writes on this, um, doing Islamic law in the framework of modern states is a very, very different thing than, um, uh, than, than what happened before. And even if you want to historicize uh, the pre-modern Islamic tradition, which I would say Halak wants to ontologize, he wants to say this is taken out of history, this is the thing in itself, where I would say that's how it developed, and yes, that's a historical fact that this is this is how Islamic law operated um, uh, uh, for many centuries, um, that that's still in history. That's a historical fact, and a historical fact can't be confused for some kind of ontological fact. So so I would say that yes, the, the modern state is a is a huge problem for um, for modern Islamists, particularly for Islamists that want 
a kind of radical democratic redemption of the modern state, that they want to say the state can be uh, redeemed because it is independent of dictatorship. It's independent of authoritarian domination. And this is why we Muslims are in a position to redeem uh, not only modernity and not only our own societies, but democracy itself. We can give new life to democracy because um, uh, because we have a form of democratic rule that does not rely on the state as the absolute font of all legality and legitimacy. So that's a kind of argument that's made by quite radical democratic thinkers, for example, uh, Ghanoushi. And I think that um, their story about how there's never really a founding moment. There's never really a moment in which you can create something new out of nothing, right? Out of yeah. simply the will and the identity and the essence of a pious people that can recreate democratic legitimacy within the framework of a modern state. That never really happens. And uh, so I think a lot of the historical things that Halak points out about the domination of the modern bureaucratic state about oligarchy, about the difficulty of bridging the gap between elites and the people. These are all extremely important problems for um, any kind of radical theory of, uh, of Islamic democracy. And one of the very, very interesting things I think to look at now is um, where does Islamism go from here as an idea, as a grand idea, without this kind of trope that, well, you know, uh, uh, we have a conception of sovereignty that is dual, divine, and popular. We can redeem the state. Nobody really believes that anymore. Sure. And so what is Islamism as a distinct idea? That, I think, is a, is a real uh, kind of open question and a fascinating one to, to look at today. Yeah, certainly. Well, I look forward to, to hearing about how this project and these questions develop over, over time, Andrew. Thank you so much for, for giving us your time today. I've really enjoyed it. It's been really, really thought-provoking as usual. And I've come away with a lot of ideas myself. And I want to go and uh, get out your book from the pile that, uh, that I have right now. So thank you so much for, for giving us your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, thanks for the opportunity and thanks for your time. And I, I hope you're staying safe over there. Thanks, Andrew. Likewise. And I hope everyone is as safe as they can be in these, these delicate times. As always, thanks for listening. Until next time, 